If that doesn't excite you, here's what I want you to do. Take your pulse. Please take your pulse, okay? Um, I'm absolutely serving, and I'm going to be shining shoes, so I'm very excited about that. Anyways, uh, I hope you'll get plugged into that. We're very excited about this ministry. It's, we think it's going to be a great opportunity for us just to love on our community. So uh, anyway, I hope you'll take advantage of that. I want to ask you a question as we get started this weekend. Have you ever uh, been given the silent treatment? Maybe it was by your parents. Maybe it was by your kids. Maybe it was by your spouse. Uh, but there was something that wasn't right. And you kind of knew there wasn't, and there was, uh, there was just no communication. Let me ask you another question. Have you ever gotten the silent treatment from God? You said... You, you thought, where's God been? And, and it may have, may have been at a time in your life where you're really going through a difficult time and you were crying out to him. You were calling out to him. You were asking for his presence. And, his, and, and you wanted to hear from him, but, but, but heaven seemed to be silent to you. And, and to the life of you, as you reviewed and looked at your life, there was nothing that you did or that you could remember that that should have caused God to give you the silent treatment if indeed that's what God does when we sin, which I don't think he does. But we tend to go there. We tend, God, what did I do? For, because this is how it happens in human relationships, right? But God seems silent. And we wonder, where were you, God? Where are you, God? We've been looking at Noah. And uh, actually we've been going down to looking at heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. And we started last weekend on Noah, and uh, where we were last week is uh, Noah and his family got on the ark, and uh, they spent a year on the ark, but no word from God. No word. He said, just get on the ark, time to get on, and then it was like silence. Uh, the passage we're looking at uh, this weekend is Hebrews It says, it was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God who warned him about things, notice, that had never happened before. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. Um, So I want to just review, because I'm assuming some of you were not here this week, last weekend, And I want to just kind of review a few things that I said about the flood. The first thing is, I tried to make the point, hopefully I I did, that the flood's not a cute children's story. It was an account of the destruction of people and animals. Total destruction. The flood was one of the most horrific judgments of God known to men. And it's interesting to me that we find our time as a world especially the western part of the world, that we, we are finding uh, tsunami, or you know, hurricanes, we're finding uh, earthquakes, just like one after another. It's just, it just seems like you catch your breath and there's another one. And, oh, there's an earthquake. And, you know, I, I, I think it would be really appropriate for us just to, to stop for a moment and just pray for those folks that have lost everything, that have lost loved ones, people that are just struggling beyond our comprehension right now. Let's just pray for them right now. And Father, thank you that we can come to you and lift up these folks. We pray for the people in Mexico, some of the 
uh, people who have lost family members and loved ones. Um, we pray for the, the workers that are trying to dig, dig people out. We pray for those who have gone through um, tremendous loss in Houston and the Florida Keys and the uh, just all down the Bermuda Coast, that whole area there that has just been hit so so uh, radically with these uh, hurricanes. We just would pray for your grace. Help them as they, they try to rebuild and as they try to recover. And uh, it, it may be that many of them wonder where you are right now and maybe what they did to cause this in their lives. But, uh, Father, we would ask that you be a very present help in this time of trouble and meet, their, meet them where, they're need, where they need you the most, as you will. And thank you that we can lift them up. Uh, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as I was saying before, I think we've made, we've left this terrible tragedy and we've left it in the children's classroom and we need to take it out because this was, this was clearly God's judgment on humanity, a godless humanity. You know, I remember watching on, uh, I think it was YouTube when there was a tsunami that had hit an Asian coast. And the interesting thing is people were on the beach and the water just kept going out. I mean, it just kept, it just kept going out. And some people stood on the beach and they said, look, the water's going out. And there were other people who just ran. They just took off. And then it was about two minutes later, this big wave came and it just hit the beach and it hit the town and it would you know the people that were on the beach didn't have time time to run and even then they had a little bit of a warning but but the flood was there was no warning um it was just like the the earthquake though interestingly enough the earthquake in mexico hit on a, the, the exact same day a uh, number of years ago apparently but there was no warning. Uh, there was no radar um, like we have in the hurricanes. The water just came. It came from below and it came from above and there was complete destruction. No one could outrun the water. No one could outclimb the water. Um, there would be no high ground that they could take to protect themselves. It was just a wall of water. The, last, the other thing I, I mentioned last weekend was that I felt like Noah was a flat character. And what I meant by that was... He never utters a word. He doesn't plead for the lives of those who died. He doesn't thank God for sparing his life and his family. We don't know anything about him other than he is called righteous and a man who walked with God. But we don't know anything about how he felt or his emotions. We don't know any about that. There's nothing in the biblical record to tell us that. It's not that, they, that we couldn't have that. It's that we don't have that. And, there's, and usually when you don't have it, it's not there for a reason. And I, I believe the reason is, is this story is not so much about Noah as much as it about God. I think Noah's story is put there to remind us that we are guests in God's world, that uh, we exist for his pleasure, that judgment is coming just as it did in the days of Noah. Jesus uh, reinforces that, that God has a right to judge mankind at any time in any way he sees fit. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But that's essentially where I went last weekend. I want to just take a few minutes 
before we get into the passage we're going to read, is I want to I want to speak to a person who may be skeptical uh, skeptical about a flood of this magnitude. Why should anyone believe in the flood account? And I want to give you three reasons why I believe that the flood is not only uh, believable, but it's uh, it's something that certainly uh, you can put your, your your trust in the word of God as it gives us an account. One of the arguments that uh, people make uh, who are, who would say, um, I don't believe in the biblical uh, biblical record of the flood. I don't believe in Noah. I don't believe in the flood. They would say, well, here's it's just one of many ancient flood accounts. They would say something like this. There are many ancient cultures that have a, a flood account. For, for example, the Babylonians have their their own epic of Gilgamesh or the Gilgamesh flood. And their story is uh, I won't pronounce the hero's name, but he essentially builds a boat. He gathers his family and some animals into the boat. The earth floods and the boat uh, finally rests on a mountain where uh, as he's waiting for the water to go uh, uh, down, he sends out a raven and then he sends out a dove. And uh, then um, he leaves the boat and offers a sacrifice to God. And that sounds very now there's very big differences between the Gilgamesh epic and the uh, this the story of the biblical flood, but some professors in college in religion classes who like to get freshmen in these religion classes and like to rock their faith, uh, they like to challenge Christians, and uh, they want to say, "Look, here's the Gilgamesh epic, and here's uh, you know the biblical record and the Gilgamesh thing. Uh, they're just myths, and the biblical record is just a myth." Uh, the biblical flood story, they say, is similar to all the other world religions uh, because most world religions have a mythological story about a flood. Uh, there's over 200 flood narratives from most of the religions of the world. For instance, the Greeks, the Persians, the Druids, the Mayans, the Irish, Chinese, the Polynesian. They all have a flood story. So they have. there's over 200 cultures that have this. Why in the world would you not just see this as one of the many myths of the flood? So the logic of the professor would be, if so many world cultures have a flood story, the biblical account must be purely mytho- mythological uh, legend. And uh, all it's just like all the rest. So what do you say to that? I want to offer another possibility. If 200 religious cultures have a flood story, then maybe, maybe it's possible that there was a flood. A real one. (laughs) It just makes sense. Human history and all of the cultures point to it. It it, it makes more sense to say there was a flood. It's not important what they say about it. It's important to say all cultures agree there was a flood. For instance, if you go out to the parking lot, we have Toyotas and Hondas and Nissans and Dodges and Chevys and all these other cars out in the parking lot. Those cars don't disprove that there was a man named Henry Ford that, for argument's sake, invented the first automobile, or at least mass-produced the first automobile. They don't refute that Henry Ford lived. In fact, 
because there are so many different kinds of automobiles, it proves that someone at an earlier date mass-produced automobiles. And it may be his name was Henry Ford, who's got it all going. You know, what all these cars point to is the fact that somewhere, someone, sometime, started building cars on an assembly line. So these cars point to somebody who started it all. In other words, what I'm, I guess what I'm saying is where there's smoke, there's fire. It just makes sense. So, so that's first. Secondly, someone make the argument, well, all the animals uh, on the ark, it's untenable. The ark uh, could never have held all the, the, the animals that we're aware of today. I think there's a number, number of answers for that. Let me give you one uh, just thought of a uh, line of thought along those lines. We know that from the dimensions, because we're given the dimensions in the book of Genesis, we pretty much know the size of the ark. That the ark could hold about 1.5 million cubic feet. All right. So to put that into uh, size, to kind of size that out and give you an impression of what that is, the average size of a land animal is about the size of a sheep. Okay, so if we're going to take the big and the small and kind of average it out, you you would be about the size of a sheep. You could fit 125,000 sheep on the ark according to its biblical dimensions. Okay. By the way, just an interesting fact as I was doing research, the first ship constructed similar in size to the ark was built in 1850. (laughs) So it took a long time before that, that happened. So let's get back to where we're at. 125,000 sheep on the ark, according to its biblical dimensions, all right? There today is around 18,000 species of mammals, birds, reptiles, and amphibians, all right? 18,000. If Noah took two of every species, not two of everything, but two of every species, male and female, that means there would have been 36,000 animals on the barge, Now, the barge could support 125,000 sheep, which means uh, that the animals would take up a third of the room on the ark, which leaves two-thirds of the room on the ark open for provisions and food that they would have needed for their time on the ark. Now, one of the arguments, one of the pushbacks would be, okay, yes, but here's the problem. What about all the different breeds of animals that we have? Because, uh, sure, you could have gotten uh, the different species, but what about all the breeds? Let's just take one, and uh, hopefully this will help you make the point. If you look at the history of dogs, it's very interesting. Many of you own dogs. Good for you. Uh, Boo for those of you that own cats. Now I've just alienated half of my audience, probably. Anyway... As we look at dogs, uh, about 2,000 years ago, there were, uh, let me get this right, around the time of Christ, there were 10 different kinds of dogs. So 2,000 years ago, around the time of Christ, there were about 10 kinds of dogs. Now today, through breeding and genetics, we have 400 different kinds of dogs. Have you watched the New York dog show lately and seen all these different dogs? That's only 2,000 years. We've gone from 10 to to 400. So if Noah took every species of animal but not every breed, 
then we allow for genetics to take over for the incredible diversity we see within every species in our world today. It's absolutely doable. On a side note, in chapter 7, verse 9, and I pointed this out last week, um, the animals just showed up. They just obeyed God, which, yeah, I mean, you, as you're reading, you might have just missed that. But, I mean, they just came. When, they were, when it was time, they came, you know. It's like dinner time. I'm here, you know. Um, it's also possible that they went into some form of hibernation. We know bears go into hibernation all winter long, right? It's possible that they could have gone into hibernation. It might have been a good thing, too, because can you imagine the lions with the rabbits? I mean, that's like, a, that's like an hors d'oeuvre, really. Um, those little bunnies, those just little bunny snacks, right? Um, the question I have in, in, that I want to ask is this. Why is it? that the animals and the rest of God's creation bow down and obey their creator, and mankind who is made in God's image won't. Have you ever thought about that? I think it's telling. I think it's telling. Uh, so, uh, the flood is absolutely not a myth story. Uh, where there's smoke, there's fire. And secondly, the animals could have fit on, on the, the ark as we know it. Number three, uh, some people would say, well, the judgment of God is too hard. This is too harsh. Why kill all the animals? They're innocent animals because of this. The animals were collateral damage. They were the collateral damage of sinful mankind. And our sin, whether we want to admit it or not, always affects the people around us. It does. And you know that. You've experienced that in your own life if you're honest about it. Well, you might say, well, why, why didn't God just withhold His judgment? Why not just have a time out? Just, God, be patient. Have a time out. Well, He did. And, and the time out lasted around 1,600 years. How long should God wait until he steps in? It seems as though he waited as long as he could. Uh, another question people might have, well, why doesn't God just put an end to evil? Why doesn't he just do that? Well, he did. That was the flood. And if God is going to put an end to evil today, he'd have to do a similar thing. Because the Bible says there's no one righteous. No, not one. So we shouldn't be waiting. We, sh- we shouldn't be praying, God, destroy the evil people. Because <laughs> look in the mirror. <laughs> this is what it takes for God to end evil, to end mankind. Unfortunately, the real question I think we need to ask is, why does God graciously wait? Why does why doesn't why, why doesn't God bring judgment today? And the answer is, the, the scripture says that God is long-suffering and He's patient. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all would come to repent. That's why He's waiting. He's waiting for people to, to give their lives to Him. One last point, and to me this is the most important one. If you're struggling with the flood, then I would just say this. If you, can, if you have enough faith to believe in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Every other, every other thing that happens that God causes is really a chip shot, right? It's not a big deal. 
If he created the heavens and the earth, a flood is not a big deal to God. Okay? Now, you would say, well, you've got to take that by faith. Absolutely, you have to take it by faith. Of course you do. But you know what? Everybody on this planet, I don't care how antagonistic, agnostic, atheistic, whatever, they, they all have faith. Everyone has faith. Every one of you is exercising faith right now in your chair. You didn't even think about it. You just sat down. Did you think, well, I hope it holds me? Now, if it was a rickety chair, you might look, I don't know if that's going to hold me. But you didn't even think about it. You just sat down. Oh, this chair will hold me. Now, how'd that happen? Well, little by little, you learn to trust and you learn to observe. And basically, your trust and observation went together. And now, you, you, we do things that are based upon faith all the time. Let's jump into the text. Uh, Genesis chapter 7, on page 7. If you don't have a Bible, we have these chair Bibles. We're only going to have a few minutes to, to look at this passage. I want to read through it. Genesis chapter uh, 7. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, then verse 23, then chapter 8, verse 1. It's on page 7. When everything was ready, the Lord said to Noah, Go into the boat with all your family for for among uh, all the people on the earth, I can see that you alone are righteous. Now, notice he's not saying you, your wife, and your kids, or you know, your 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 sons. Or he's not saying that they're there on his coattail, on his righteous coattail. And I talked, and I, I I said something to the dads last week, and I said you are the one that your kids are going to ride. They, they can look at mom, but they want to see what dad's doing. Is your is faith real in your life, dad? Okay. Take with you seven pairs of male and female, each of each animal I have approved for eating and for sacrifice, and take one of one pair of each of the others. Also take seven pairs of each kind of bird. Uh, they must be male and female in each pair to ensure that all life will survive on earth after the flood. Seven days from now, I will make the rains pour down on the earth. And it will rain for 40 days and 40 nights until I have wiped from the earth all living things I have created. So Noah did everything as the Lord commanded. Noah was 600 years old when the flood covered the earth. God wiped out every living thing on the earth. People, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground and the birds of the sky. They had nowhere to land. All were destroyed. The only people who survived were Noah and those with him in the boat. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock with him in the boat. He sent a wind to blow across the earth and the flood waters began to recede. Now there's two incredible truths from this passage that we want to look at. The first one is this. That first, number one, God remembers Noah. Well, can you imagine what it must have been like? I said before, Noah's probably on the ark for about a year. Can you imagine that? Noah and his family on the ark for about a year. Uh, but during that time, as I said before, God was silent, not a word. He said, get on the boat. Seven days later, it began to rain. Forty days, forty nights. A year on the boat, not a word from God. They're being carried away, and there's no rudder. There's no sail system. There's no, <laughs> there's no steering wheel. They're just being kind of floating around. And it says that Noah's a righteous man. He, he's doing God's will, and yet God's still silent. Wasn't that Job's cry, remember? 
God says, there's not a man on the earth like him. Job says, I just want an audience with God. God is silent. Why is God silent? God finally speaks out to Job. I think in retrospect, Job should, would have said, in, said, well, okay, never mind. <laughs> but, but essentially, um, you know, you, you, sometimes we think when life goes south for us and it gets dark and we go down this dark road that we've done something, we may have done nothing. And God may be silent, but that doesn't mean he's angry with us. He's he's punishing us. He's giving us the silent treatment. He hasn't spoken to him for a year. How long will this go on? Silence for a year on a boat with animals. Silence from above. And Noah must have said, why has God turned away? What are we going to do? He might have been thinking, I was doing his will. I mean, this wasn't easy to build this boat. Have maybe probably contractors come and overseeing that and the sacrifice he made and people thinking he was nuts. And I was faithful. You know, there are times as you read through the book, you read through the Bible and you come to the book of Psalms and many of the psalmists cry out to God. One of the most famous cries was the cry from Psalm 22. And it says this, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. And this may have been the cry of Noah. Noah, certainly this would have been a reflection of his heart, right? Somebody else used these words. We know those that to be Jesus when he hung on the cross because he experienced the abandonment of God, his father. Now, none of us wants to be forgotten, especially during those troubling times. We need to know that God is there, that he cares for us, that he has a plan. And these are the times where our faith is forged. When God is silent. When he doesn't answer us. Instead of saying, God, what did I do to deserve this? Why are you punishing me? Maybe we ought to say, God, you're bringing me through this time. I don't know where you're taking me and I don't know what you're doing. But I trust you. Like Job said, though he slay me, yet I will still trust him. You see, faith is trusting that God remembers us even when we're going through those long, dark Days of life. And it may be that you right now are going through that time and you wonder, where is God? Why hasn't He spoken? Why hasn't He shown up? Why hasn't He revealed Himself to me? What have I done to anger Him? And the answer is probably nothing. Righteous people suffer. People who love God suffer. People who, 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 who are loved by God and love God sometimes go through periods of silence. And it doesn't mean that God is giving them the silent treatment. That he's angry with them. So that's the first thing that God remembers Noah. And he says, Noah, <laughs> can you imagine what it must have been like for Noah to hear God's voice again? It's over. So Noah remembers God. And uh, if you go to chapter 8, verse 15... You could see what, how Noah responded. 
Then God said to Noah, leave the boat, all of you, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Release the animals, the birds, the livestock, the small, the small animals that scurry along the ground so they can be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So God gives Noah and his family command. It's very similar to um, what God says to Adam and Eve. He says to them, be fruitful and multiply. It's God starting over. It's Genesis 1, version 2, right? So Noah leaves the ark and immediately builds an altar. He offers a sacrifice to God. We have, and it's interesting, as I said, Noah being kind of this cardboard character, we have no record of what that prayer is. You know, and it's very often, many times, when there's a prayer, uh, when God delivers, there's all Scripture oftentimes will put that prayer in. In the psalm or somewhere in the text, it'll show the prayer that they prayed. The actual words, nothing. But we do know that Noah built an altar of remembrance. He built an altar. And you know, as I was reading through this and I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know, there are times in our lives where we've done this, right? Where we're going through those dark valleys. We wonder where God is. God shows up. He delivers us. And then we immediately thank Him. And we, we built this, we, we built kind of this symbolic altar of remembrance. We say, thank you. Altar of thanksgiving. And we say, God, thank you for helping me. Thank you for delivering me. And we remember God because God remembered us. So we remember God. But I think what happens is we, we generally go back to the days where we, we operate, we function, and we, we stop thinking about God. And I, I think we need to daily have those, those altars of thanksgiving, those altars of remembrance of God, and say, God, I, I remember you. I thank you. I acknowledge you. We need to remember him and thank him and acknowledge him, especially in our busy and distracted lives. Um, I think one of the things that has gone, gone totally out the window is praying before meals. Uh, I'm not trying to be a stickler here, but I, I, frankly, I, I think it's a moment where we need to breathe out and we need to say, God, thank you for this meal that you have provided. Thank you for caring for me. Thank you for giving me food because I am I'm in the top 90 percentile of the rest of the world as far as knowing where my food comes from. Maybe before you lay your head down at, uh, on your pillow tonight, say, God, thank you for giving me a dry, fully stable house that's warm or cool, <laughs> right? And a bed, and a pillow, covers. Thank you. What are we doing there? We're building an altar of remembrance. We're saying, God, I realize this is a gift from you because there's so many people in parts where there's been an earthquake or parts where there's been, a, been hurricanes or tornadoes or destruction or tsunamis or just poverty where they can't say that. Um, Faith is remembering and acknowledging God for all He is and all He's done. How are you doing there? Are you remembering Him? 
See, it's interesting because it says God remembered Noah, and then it says Noah remembered God. Noah remembered God. He built an altar for God. One last point I want to make. And here's what I found in my life. Uh, when, when God does something for me, he rescues me. When he does something incredible, I'm very quick to acknowledge him and thank him. But in my regular day-to-day life, I find him off, off, often neglectful to even think of him, let alone thank him for the little things. I think we need to ask ourselves, and maybe this is the, the, the question that you should wrestle with. You know, if you want to know um, what it means to be a, a mature, growing, thriving follower of Jesus Christ, here is the essence of what that looks like. And here's the question you need to ask yourself. Do you love God for what he does for you or for just who he is? Do you love him for what he does, or do you just love him for who he is? If we love him only for what he does, then when we go through those difficult days, we'll question, we'll demand, we'll even abandon him. Many Christians have never come to understand that maturity is delighting in God. Look at what the psalmist says. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Can you say that about God? Is he the desire of your heart? How many of us can say that that when we, we get what the psalmist is saying, far too many Christians love God as long as he takes care of them. And that means he gives them everything they want. They never encounter any troubles or trials. And they don't need to put too much effort into that relationship. It doesn't have, as long as it doesn't cost them too much, they're in. And that's an immature Christian. Do you want what God can do for you more than just being with him? How many Christians truly delight in God? How many would do anything for him with no thought of return? How many Christians desperately seek him? How many can honestly say, God is my strength? Think about that. See, God is most glorified in us when we find our ultimate satisfaction in him. Our faith is fully expressed when we find our everything in him. Think about that in any human relationship you have. If if you're in that relationship only for what that person can do for you, that's a pretty immature relationship. But when you're in that relationship and you desire, you love to serve and to gift on and to be with a person, that is a higher level relationship, much, much higher. It's all God wants with us. But some of us, are still in that, I'll love you, God, if, when, because. Not just, I love you, God, period. I just want to be with you. I know I had one of those relationships where he walked with God. God says, hey, we're going to do this. He says, all right. I think it was a man of few words. 
here's the point. Once we desire him above all other relationships, all other things, all our pursuits, when we seek him above all, here's what happens. We don't do it for this, but here's the product. When we do that, we find ourselves. We find our purpose. We find our meaning. We find our joy. We find everything. See, a person of faith desires to know God and to be known by God. That was Noah. So, if if you want to know what faith is, faith is desiring God more than anyone or anything. And loving Him is not a duty, it's a delight. Stand with me, let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for Noah, thank you for the lessons we've learned from uh, his life, that he walked with you that he lived a righteous life. Thank you that you cared for him and loved him very much. You spared him, and not only him, you spared the people around him that he loved. It's an amazing thing. You got his heart. He wasn't a perfect man. We're going to look at that next weekend because there is no perfect human being other than your son, Jesus. For whatever... uh, our hearts need tonight, Father. I pray that you speak to each of our hearts. It may be that we desire you because of what you can do for us. And that's kind of been the way our relationship has been. For some of us, we haven't even acknowledged you this week. Not before our meals, not before bed, not at all. Just kind of going out, doing our thing. We're here. You should be happy, God. We're here. That's not the kind of relationship we want. We want to desire you. We want to delight in you like the psalmist speaks of. So, Father, sometimes we don't do that. We know your word tells us that you not only give us the ability, but you give us the desire. Give us the desire. Put a desire, a burning desire in our heart to want to be with you, to walk with you, to know you. And, Father, if you do that, our lives will change radically. Help us to live our lives along those lines and help us to follow the example, not of Noah, but of Jesus. We thank you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.